I just, I really do. I want to say thank you to all the moms in here. Let's give all the moms a hand. I, it's, um, I'm, I'm the youngest of six kids and I saw all the work my mom put into raising all of us. I have four older sisters and a brother. For about 10 years, my dad would go to work. He'd leave Sunday afternoon. He'd get on an airplane, go somewhere around the United States. He'd be out selling products until Thursday or Friday the next week. And so my, he did that for 10 years. My mom would take care of us. That was a huge responsibility. So then when my wife had four kids of her own, we, I knew that she needed a break. She just needed a break. So one of my favorite things to do is take my kids, throw my kids in a car and go to a local park, find a, go to different parks and I'd give my wife two, three hours and Sparta has some good parks. It's a really cool park. If you go down Jupiter Road, across from the Y, there's this whole, I called it the tire park, but there's no more tires there anymore. They, my kids know what I'm talking about. It makes me mad. It was a lot of fun. But one time, Lee Black told me, he goes, you ever try up to Nuego? They got a couple cool parks up in Nuego. Actually, there's a park named after Jason Long's dad, I think. I'm not sure. Has a big boat or something. So we went up there, I took my kids up there, and then on the way home, we went down M37, and I got some ice cream at this ice cream shop in Nuego. I forget the name of it, but it had one of those kids, one of those, I think it was a college kids, that's really obnoxious. You ever go to an ice cream shop, and a kid just is talking, and they're kind of obnoxious, they have nothing else to do, and they're bored, so they kind of make fun of you. I walked up to get an ice cream, ice cream cone for my kids, and he goes, Hey, you look like somebody famous. You, oh, who is it? You look like somebody famous. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Actually, Jared, remember we go to Pastor Josh's a month ago, and his daughter said, you look like a fat John Stamos. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Thanks a lot, Emma. Really nice of you. But this guy had that same... She, no, she said fat. I heard it. I heard it. I don't forget that. But this guy said, you look like, and I said, Tom Cruise, right? He goes, no, no, no. I said, Christian Bale from Batman, right? He goes, no, no, you look like, and I think my oldest daughter, I'm not sure I heard her say, Jerry Lewis? No, 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 no. He said, but it was a comedian. You look like Jim Carrey. I said, Jim Carrey? You know, the guy from the Truman Show, he said, no, you look like the guy on Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey. I'm like, I don't look like Jim Carrey. I'm nothing like him. So I went on, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, look up Bruce Almighty, and I'm telling you, I, that offends me. I look nothing. I'm still offended. I look nothing like him. I did start reading, however, the storyline of Bruce Almighty. I don't want to watch the movie, but it sounds intriguing. I guess the idea is this guy hated life, and he's complaining so much, God said, all right. I'll give you all my power. What would you try to run the world? And I was thinking about that. Let's say God said that to you. Let's say he said, all right, I'll give you all my power. You know, his power where he could speak, the fancy Latin term is ex nihilo, out of nothing he speaks and he makes the stars. So what would I do? I, I have a three, I've been thinking about this a lot. I have a three-pronged strategy for my platform. God gave me his powers, first thing I'd click my hand like that and all debt would be removed across the board, across the world, no more debt. And if you're in a third world country and you don't have enough money, you just pick up a stone, flip it over and it turns into a gold bar and everything would be taken care of. Second thing on my platform is I would end everything that's broken. 
So that means all the hospitals would be cleared out. That means all the broken legs would just fuse together. That means your leaky roof on your house, all of a sudden it would be done. Your car, that lemon you drive, the back struts would instantly be welded. Everything, everything that's broken would be healed. Then I have a third one. My third one would be, I think, the hardest one, but I would make everybody that's mad at each other forgive each other. So that means all of a sudden I'd click my fingers one day, I would see Barack Obama hugging Donald Trump. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you're going to see that, but voila! If I, if I had that power, but the Hillary one would be tough. But surely God, he can do this, can't he? He can do this. If he's all-powerful, I mean, we call, we call it omnipotent, all-power, he can do anything he wants. So why does he not do these things? Why do we sit on this earth and grovel around, kind of like you know, a bike that has all the spokes knocked out? Why doesn't he fix it? Because he must do something first before he fixes everything. There's something he has to get done first that is the most important thing before he can do anything else. We're going to learn about that today. Actually, we're going to see Jesus for the first time in a public ministry, and he's amazing. He's got amazing power, but he also uses his power for a purpose. He's got purpose behind his power. So the title for today is Power with Purpose. If you open up to Luke 4, going to begin reading verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Luke 4. Last week we talked about how Jesus spoke in his hometown and they didn't want him. They actually wanted to kill him. So he made it out of Dodge and this is the action picks up in verse 31. Jesus went down to Capernaum. And the reason why it's said like that, Capernaum, you have the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is the most far north city. We normally think of north and south. If I go south, I go down. But to the reader, it's geography. Jerusalem is up on the hill and it goes down. And then Galilee's in a bowl. And Capernaum's on the bottom of the bowl. So Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus and Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed, and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house at Simon Peter, the, the disciple. <clears throat> now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. 
And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever. It left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed, went into a desolate place. And the people sought him, and they came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Right away, when we begin reading in verse 31, this is, in a sense, the very beginning of his work publicly. There's something different about him. He's amazing. And it's not his eyes. He doesn't look like Jim Carrey. That's not what's amazing. What's amazing is verse 32. They said he possessed something. Actually, all of the Gospels say this about him. He possessed authority. He had authority. This is a big, big concept. It's actually all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And authority is the idea. It's actually a Greek word which communicates three things. Number one, it's the idea of or origin. He's the author. Authority, the root of that in English, is author, where we get author. But he's the one that wrote history and reality. He's the alpha. He's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And omega, he's the last letter. You could say alpha, he's the first mover. He wrote the story. Omega, he finishes it. He's the guy that has the last word. you ever get in an argument with somebody, and you think you have the last word, but they always want the last word, and then you kind of saying, no, but you're wrong, and then they want to keep, and it goes on with Jesus. Once he's done talking, it's done. Authority also means he has full rights and privileges to do whatever he wants. He doesn't need permission. Third thing about authority is it literally means power, might, strength. Not only can he do whatever he wants, but he has the ability to perform it. He's got the power. I love the discussion in the book of Job when God's talking to Job. And he brings Job before him and he asks him a lot of questions. Some of the questions are, all right, Job, can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook? The Leviathan's this giant sea creature. And he's saying, can you put a fish hook in his mouth and reel him in? Job, can you command the morning stars, tell them where to go? Can you take hold of the skirts of the earth and shake the wicked off of it? That's an interesting phrase. Can you just shake the earth and cause all the wicked to shoot off of it? And then he asks Job, he says, can you bring rain? And I'm sure Job said, uh, <laughs> no, no. Jesus can. He can do all those things. He has the authority to. The best illustration I can think of authority is, I, uh, my parents had a, a, there was another family they were friends with, and this family had this kid named Kevin. This kid was bad. Like, he was rotten bad. And he was my age, and my sister and I always had to play with Kevin. I hated playing with Kevin. Kevin would go in the backyard, he'd take a stone in our backyard and throw it over the roof of our house and see if he could land it on the street that's right in front of our house that has... 45-mile-an-hour traffic buzzing by. I'd say, Kevin, what are you doing? <laughs> He'd look at you like that. 
say, Kevin, you're driving me crazy. We'd go in a house and Kevin would say, I'm thirsty. He'd just open the fridge, start drinking the milk right out of the gallon or pouring out pop in a cup and drink. I'd say, Kevin, you can't do that. I can do whatever I want. Like that. We'd go on the TV, watch a show. And if he didn't like the show, he'd just turn it off. He goes, I don't want to watch TV. Let's go outside. And my mom said, you got to play with Kevin. I hated Kevin. I'm sorry. He drove me crazy. But one day, Kevin wanted a snack, and he went in the kitchen, said, you guys got chips? said, Kevin, you can't do that. He said, I'm going to do whatever I want. Kevin went into the kitchen, opened up the cupboard, and started taking out all these snacks and kind of putting them in his arm like this. I think he had ADHD, but they didn't say it back then. They called it hyperactivity, but he put it in his arms like that. And my dad walked in. He said, hey! What are you doing? No, 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 nothing. Put those back up there. Oh, okay. And get out of here, you rotten kid. And the kid zipped out of there. Now, my dad's word had authority. He had every right to say those things because it's his house. I could say it, but Kevin didn't listen. When my dad said it, that's what Jesus had when he said it. It's different. And so, really, you could say it like this. When you look at how Jesus lived in these passages, there are two proofs that he had this power, this authority. The first one is the ear test. It says in verse 31, when he was teaching on the Sabbath, they were astonished at his teaching. Like astonished. That means when he spoke, they were shocked mixed with wonder and fear. Like, wow. Reminds me of John 7, 46. The Pharisees told the, basically some soldiers said, hey, Jesus is causing riots at the temple. He's teaching. He's teaching stuff we don't like. Go, go arrest him and bring him to us. And they went to go get him. And they listened to him. And they left back. They went back to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, where is he? And they said this. Nobody speaks like this man. It's the ear test. Actually, the idea of the way he speaks is that he's original. Most rabbis would teach what they were told to teach. So his words came out of the source of originality. Like, no, like they were authentic. They were raw. They were cutting. And they were heavy. I want to show you, uh, go to Matthew a second. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, he's in a discussion with the Pharisees. They ask him all kinds of questions. They ask him about money. Who should we give it to, God or Caesar? And he gives the answer. In Matthew 22, 22, after he gave the answer, it says, when the people heard it, they marveled and they left him. They went away. Matthew 22, 33, another question. This question was, about uh, the resurrection and marriage. And after he spoke, verse 33 says, and when the crowd heard it, when the people heard it, they were astonished. They were just, they couldn't believe it. Wow. And then you have verse 46. He asked them a question about who is the Lord. And they couldn't answer it. Verse 46 said, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Not only did what he say was shocking, but they could not answer him. 
Matthew 23, if you want to read something where Jesus calls them blind scribes and hypocrites and sepulchers, and he calls them people who are making proselytes that are twice as much the devil of hell as you are. Like he said things that were, that were shocking. Like if I went to the Pope and I said some of these things, I'd be dead. He was, he was harsh. But his word were, it was, it was heavy. It had power, it had force. One time the Roman guards came to get Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas just kissed him. The Roman guards said, we're here. Jesus said, who are you looking for? He said, I'm, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And all he had to say is, I am he. And he said, I am he. He said, all of these soldiers fell backwards and landed on the ground. His words were heavy. They were heavy. Did you ever, did you ever hear a sermon or hear your dad say something that just lands heavy? If you have a good dad, sometimes they can say things that just, you never forget them. I remember this one time, all my dad said, I was getting this really kind of a silly job for the summer, and my dad said to me, he goes, Chris, when are you going to grow up? That's all he said. It's like it changed me. I, I went to a sermon one time. It was up at Lake Ann Men's Camp, and I was with a number of men from our church. This one guy, wasn't really, he wasn't really living for Christ. The speaker got up and said, Jesus is not your buddy. And when he said that, the guy changed his life. From one statement, words of Christ, when they're infused by the Spirit, they're heavy. And then the second proof is the eye test. Jesus had authority over reality, both spiritual reality and physical reality. He could change things. The first one is spiritual reality. Go back to Luke. He could tell the demons what to do. Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And then if you have verse 41, same thing. Demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was a Christ. There's a lot of questions. Why does he tell them to be silent? One commentator said, Because they're unclean spirits. That means they don't have any right to put the name of Christ on their lips. Because... An unclean spirit doesn't love God. He hates God. And anything he says about God will be mixed with contempt. And Jesus is like, no, be silent. So what is a demon? Are demons real? I believe they're real. And what they are is, the way theologians explain it, is in eternity past, when God made the angels, the strongest angel rebelled. His name's Lucifer. Lucifer convinced one-third of the other created angels to follow him in rebellion. So God cast them out of his presence. He threw them out like lightning, Jesus said. And when they were cast out, they were never allowed to return. They were fixed in their choice. So the angels, two-thirds of them, serve God. One-third of them hate him, rebel against him. 
And they're allowed, they are allowed to teach us, tempt us, torture us. They can possess unbelievers. They can oppress believers. But demons are real. But when Jesus shows up, just as roaches run, as they run to the cupboards and they run to the edges of the room when the light of the kitchen goes on, when the bright light of the Son of God appears, they can't take it. And they leave. They run. They can't handle it. Jesus is the light of the world. The Holy Spirit fuels Him. The clean power of the Spirit. And Jesus is this bright incandescent light going into a dark world and the Satan and the demons like roaches flee when he comes in, comes in their presence. It's funny, have you ever watched, I like to kind of relate it to, have you ever seen, like when they go on ghost hunts, like when people go on these reality TV shows, they'll go to an insane asylum and they want to go look for ghosts. They've got all of this ultraviolet equipment, recording equipment, microphones, and the stupid idiots go at 2 o'clock in the morning when it's flat out dark. Why, why do you do that? Why don't you go in the afternoon at 12 o'clock, break out all the windows so bright lights flood it? Because it's a dumb show. That's the first reason. Because you get scared. Oh, it's scary. What happened? That was my coin that hit the floor. No, that was a demon chuckling. But, it, but the second thing is, I think because they say that they only like the darkness. That's when they're active. There's a lot of, I think, in the church, demon hunters who go look for demons under every corner in every soul. And you know what James says? Draw near to God. Draw near to God and Satan will flee. Why? Because he's bright and roaches can't stand the light. He's powerful. I think if Satan can get you Always wondering if there's a demon around the corner. He's one because you'll stop thinking about Christ. He doesn't want you to love Christ. He wants you to be obsessed with them. They exist. But draw near to God, Satan will flee. Then Jesus not only has power over the demonic or the spiritual world, he has power over the physical world. Look at verse 38. This is... The eye, eye test of the physical world. Verse 38. He arose, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Simon is Simon Peter, the apostle. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever. They appealed to him on her behalf. Jesus, will you heal her? So it says he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. Like it's immediate. He didn't have to conjure. It's immediate. She rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And other passages, the idea is that he's still at Peter's mom's house. He's probably out in the porch. People have heard about her getting healed. And they started bringing up everybody from the town of Capernaum and probably the surrounding areas. So brought up their, their uncle with leprosy or their mom with a, you know, a bad back. And then as they'd walk by the house, Jesus would touch them. His compassion would be aroused. They'd be healed instantly. Because he's got power. He's got authority. It says he healed all of them. Every one of them. 
Do I believe he can still heal? Yeah, I do, but this gets in another long side road, but I'll just touch it quickly. It's the issue of signs and wonders. Well, I believe in signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are miraculous things like miracles, healings, tongues, prophecy that God gives to the church to edify it. During Jesus' day, these signs and miracles are happening all over the place like crazy. It says in John 20, 30, and 21, 25, he did so many things, referring to signs, that if they were not written, you couldn't contain them. I mean, if they were written, you couldn't contain them. You couldn't find a library big enough to talk about all the things that Jesus did. That's hyperbole to say he was always doing miracles. Okay, so where are they now? Like, I, I got to tell you, I would love it if I could just go in and I saw Murray this past week just say, Murray, will you just stand up, lean over him like Jesus did, touch him and say, get up. And he gets up and walks right out. Why don't they just happen like that? Well, there's a big debate. It's been raging. There's one side of the Christian church that really believes they're done. They're ceased. It's over. That because we have the canon... God has done you doing miraculous. There's another group that says, really, that's bad exegesis, which means bad hermeneutics, how to really handle the Scripture. And so in 1 Corinthians 13.10, talks about when the perfect comes, these will be done. What is the perfect? Well, it's the appearance of Christ. He still hasn't appeared yet. And some scholars say, yeah, they're still they're still." We're still able to have those. God's still there. He can still do miracles. But I just want to go on this path. What is a sign? John 2.11 calls miracles signs. He calls them signs. A sign is a placard that points to something. So if I'm going to the king's castle to see the king, I follow the sign that says he's up there. So the sign isn't what I've come for. The sign points me to him. It directs me and authenticates the location of the real thing. That's what it means by a sign. Two things I'll say about this. Signs are wonderful gifts from God. They really are when you let them be used for their purpose. Do I believe God still can? Absolutely I do. Are they great gifts? John 2.23 says when Jesus healed, when he turned the water into wine, people started to believe in him. This sign caused people to exercise faith. Acts 4.29 and 30. This is when the apostles started praying for signs and wonders to validate what they've been doing. So they didn't shy away from them. They wanted them. But if you go to Hebrews, Hebrews says something very interesting about them. Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, verses 3 and 4. The writer of Hebrews said, um, he's talking about salvation. Salvation means to be delivered and rescued by God. And it says, how shall we escape if we neglect a great salvation? And then he says, this salvation was declared first by the Lord. So Jesus was the one that came to declare salvation. And it was attested to us 
by those who heard, which is the apostles. So the disciples heard Jesus, and they continued sharing it. While God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So the gifts that were given by the Spirit were to validate, authenticate the message. And the message of the apostles and the message of Christ. That's the purpose behind them. And so what I'd say, they're great, but they have a purpose. And so, But then I would take it one step further and say, they can become idolatrous distractions if you let them be the purpose. If I am going to the king's house and I see the sign and I say, come here, you guys, look at this sign. Let's camp here. Look how the sign glows yellow. Let's, let's just stare at the sign. It's, you'd say that's silly. The sign is to point me to the person. So for instance, Matthew 12, 38 and 39, Jesus is performing all kinds of signs and miracles, and the, and the Pharisees come up and say, we'd like to see more of them. And Jesus says, you know why you want more of them? Because you're wicked. You're adulterous generation. Wait, I thought signs were good. They are, but the problem is the sign was to point to Christ. Christ is in their midst. They don't want Christ. They want signs. They don't want him. They want to show. That's what John 6.26 says. Jesus gets mad after a while. He says, you know why you want me to keep multiplying bread? Because your tummies are filled. That's all you want. You want a feeling. You don't want me. And in 2 Kings 18.4, it's an interesting story. Do you remember in the Old Testament when they went wandering in the wilderness, the desert? They're complaining. They're grumbling. I hate this food. God said, all right, I'm going to send snakes to bite you. So all these snakes bit them, and they started dying. The people said, we're sorry. Moses, help us. So Moses prayed to God. He said, Moses, make a bronze snake. So he made a pole, made a bronze snake that was twirling around that pole put it up high and said, if you look at that, you'll be healed. So all the people that were bit by a snake looked up and they were healed. The poison was rendered useless. So they're healed. Amazing. That is an amazing gift from God. That's an amazing sign. He can do that. However, the question is, what happened to that pole? What happened after they got healed? 400 years later, it turns out they started worshiping that pole because Hezekiah had to smash it because they were offering gifts to it. It was used for a purpose. Once it was over, the ones who wanted, who were idolaters started worshiping that pole. In the same way, sometimes people come to church, we give the message, what you're going to hear of Christ. It's good, it's okay. Or you go to healing services, they'll get a 15-minute message of Christ, and for the next two and a half hours, really it's the show, it's the miracle. It's the show. Can God do that? Yeah, he can do great things. But I want to show you what Jesus says. This is the purpose of the power. This is what he wants to accomplish. This is the reason why he hasn't made the world right. Heaven's going to be perfect. But something needs to be done first. And Jesus is going to explain it. Go to Luke Chapter 4, verse 43. So it says in verse 42, 
When it was day, this is the day right after he healed everybody. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. It is, he went up on a hill, got away from people, started praying. But the people sought him, and they came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them, meaning they want him, they were conjoling him back. Come on back. We, need, we, need, we want you to heal more. I would want him to. That'd be great. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So here's the point. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. Good news is where we get our word gospel. And according to Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. That's where God's power is really seen. Why? I, I, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. What he's saying is this. Let me explain it to you like this. See how it says kingdom of God? Kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule over everything, over the world, over the universe, but also over your heart. It's over your heart. The problem with our heart is it's been poisoned. We have, we have a, a thorn in it. It's sin is in there. And if we don't get rid of this poison, we're, we, we will never want God to be our king. Jonathan Edwards once put it like this. Imagine you had a wife, you had kids, you had a king that came into your house and he said, I demand you to worship me. And he killed your wife and kids right in front of your eyes and said, now bow to me or it's going to happen to you. You would do it, but you'd hate him. You'd hate him. It says Satan believes God and trembles. Yeah, Satan sees God, demons see him God, but why don't they love him? Because they hate him. They want what he has. He, they want his rule. And when we get sin in us, it's the same thing that happens to us. We hate him. We don't want God. In our life. We want to do what we want to do. And so he could give you everything. He could heal everything. He could do this. He could do that. But if you still hate him, it'd be miserable. It'd be terrible. So I, I'll put it like this. I want you to look at it like this. God's kingdom is built not through outside force. A sword, promise of reward. A sword would be believe in me or else. That's what the Muslims do. Jihad, if you don't believe in me. Promise of reward. I'll do great things for you if you believe in me. I'll heal all your diseases. I'll take care of you. Just believe in me. I'll give you anything you want. What God says is really the kingdom begins in my heart where I fall in love with him. Where I fall in love with him. It reminds me of, like if you watch some of these Superman shows, the old Lois and Clark, or there's one... I forget one Superman show where all Clark wanted was Lois to love him. But she loved Superman. But he said, if she doesn't love me for who I really am, Clark Kent, I don't care if she loves me as Superman. We want to love Jesus as Superman, but not this amazing, kind, humble person. You see, the whole problem with reality is our heart is broken. Theologians put it like this. 
there's two kinds of humiliation. One is called legalistic humiliation. If I take my little kid who's disobedient, I can take him by the neck and say, do what I say. Do what I say. And he'll have to do what I say. But will that kid love me? No, he'll hate me. That's a good response over here. No, he won't. But if that same kid I say, will you quit disobeying? And he spits in my face. Could you do? He, he just laughs at me. Keeps hitting me. And then one day, all of a sudden, he realizes I'm hurting my dad. And he comes up to me. He says, Dad, you, why didn't you hit me? Why didn't you? Because I love you. And then he's like, I'm so sorry. That's called evangelistic humiliation. That's when they come to their senses and they realize this God is good. Because that's going to be heaven. People walking around who are no longer rebels. And you can make a perfect world out of that. They won't even care that it's everything's given to me because they will love being with the Son of Love. Colossians 1.12, 14 is really interesting. It says he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us in the kingdom of the son he loves or the son of love. It's a new kingdom. And it's all dependent upon love. I was thinking about this. And I told you about my mom. And uh, I think I was talking to my wife. I don't know who I was talking to. And I said, what? My mom gave me an amazing gift. Not only did she give me life, but she gave me a gift that I'm forever thankful for. My mom, truthfully, my mom loved my dad. She just loved my dad. Like he was gone from Sundays till Thursdays, which I told you, and sometimes when he came home, she had a long week with six kids. But she never said, how dare you? If you don't quit that job and come home, I'm going to leave you. She never threatened him by sword or force. Or she never said, okay, 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 since you're gone so long, I want you to buy me a new car, some new jewelry, and this. If you do that, I, you know, we'll make, we'll even it out. She never, she never made demands like that. What she did is she trusted my dad and she loved him. She loved him. I find a lot of Christians are like that with God. You know what? Life's terrible. I'm just going to, I'm tired of this church stuff. Lord. You know, if you don't come to my rescue and heal me, I don't know if you really exist. It's, it's a threat. Both of those are kind of threats. How do you know the power of God is in you? You trust. You just love him. So I'd put it like this. I'd say this. The power, God's power, is truly seen when a heart trusts completely because he's working from the ground up. He wants to change you first. Trust is faith. That's what that means. And as I was thinking about this, and it's not on my slides, I was thinking there is also one other sign that God's power is real in your life. And this is really key to me. The way you can tell God has given you his power is you're able to give the power to other people. Let me illustrate. I heard this illustration. This guy had a really good friend. He said, hey, I'm going to take you to the museum. I know the guy who owns the museum. This is an amazing museum. I know you like paintings. Let's just go through the museum. And so this guy goes to this one room and he sees this huge oil painting. And he loves it. It's by an old Italian master. And he said, I love that painting. And the friend says, you want that painting? He goes, what do you mean? He goes, go ahead, take it, sure. Because I can't take that painting. Sure, go ahead. I know the guy who owns it. He said, I can do whatever I want with this. 
So at that time, you're thinking, you mean I can have that painting? Yeah, go ahead. And he's th you can think two things. Either this guy is absolutely crazy, like really crazy. He's a thief trying to get me to steal it for him. Or he really does know the owner. So when I take that Italian painting and I walk out the front of the museum and I see the museum guards, they say, hey, see ya. Yeah, he told me I could have, oh, no problem. And I put that in my car and no cops come. I realize that guy knows the owner because he's giving me what the owner owns. In the same way, you know how I can tell you know the owner of reality? You forgive. You can only forgive if you first were forgiven. That's why Jesus says, if you don't forgive, will you be for The idea is if you don't forgive, if you don't give out what only the Father can give you, you probably don't know him. His power hasn't really probably been revealed in your life. It says it like this in 1 John. You say you love God, but you don't love your brother? Come on. That's my addition come on that you know that's my addition you say you love god you say the power of god's in you but you don't love your brother then you aren't giving away what he gave you power isn't force of sword power is not reward power is the son of love in your heart ruling is he literally is he Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. But more importantly, we thank you for Jesus Christ, his word, his truth, his strength, his power, his authority. I pray, I pray in his name for people here, God, that um, are far away from you. I, I can't assume everybody really has submitted to you and your your rule your kingdom but i know you love them and i pray that father you'd send your spirit to convince them of how good you are i do pray god that you'd be pleased to exercise more gifts here in this church i pray for that i i'm gonna pray for that and i pray god there's there's people that physically need healing i pray for that I pray right now in Murray's room where he's at, I pray you heal his body. I pray, but if you choose not to, Father, I just pray that you'd give them exactly what they need, trusting you fully, whatever you're going to do. Father, I do pray for relationships in this, this church that we'd learn how to forgive. I do pray, God, that we would also learn how to love. We would be patient and kind. Keep no record of wrongs. Other than that, Lord, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.